Hey guys, let me catch you up to where we've been. This school year, we are going through um, what we are calling Jesus Bible, meaning the Bible that Jesus would have used. We call it the Old Testament. To date so far, what we have looked at is Genesis 1, 2, and 3, okay? Genesis 1 and 2 is act one of a three-act play. So what I'd like you to do is think about the Old Testament as a three-act play, three major moves. Genesis 1 and 2 is that first act. What we get is a picture of God's dream. God's dream for what he always wanted the world, humanity, life to be. And what we got into last week was the beginning of Act 2, which is Genesis 3 and 4, which means, yes, the entire rest of the Old Testament is all Act 3, okay? Genesis 3 and 4 is about God's dream crumbling. It's about the story of how this serpent, who seems to be more than a serpent, comes into God's perfect creation, plays off of humanity's vulnerabilities and conceits, and deceives them into this place of, of rebellion, faithlessness, disobedience. And in Genesis 3, God's dream crumbles. And what we're going to be looking at today is a snippet of Genesis 3. One little piece, two verses specifically, that find themselves lodged right in the middle of this collapse of all that God had built. It's Genesis 3, 14 to 15. What I'd like you to do is get it on your lips with me. Um, stand up for this. Say this with me. Here we go. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All right, great guys, thanks. Now, here's why it's significant. This passage here is considered the first ray of hope in the Bible. The theological term for this, and I'm going to give it to you so you can impress your friends and neighbors, it's called proto-evangelium, all right? Proto-evangelium. You got that? And you will hear it referred to that way. You don't need to remember that as much as you need to remember this, what it means. First, proto-gospel, evangelium. Tucked within what appears to be a curse on a snake is what is considered to be the first gospel and the first messianic promise in the Bible. And what I'd like to do with you today is unpack with you how this works and what this is about and how this sets a trajectory for what Act 3 or the rest of the Old Testament is going to be about. Now, if you're looking at this, you can more or less break it up into three parts, okay? First is this. We see the serpent getting cursed. Get to that in a moment. Second is this. We see as a result of this curse that there is this enmity, this hostility between the serpent, the woman, the serpent's offspring, and hers. And finally, at the end, we see this. There is a mutual death blow being struck by both sides. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the first part where it says, because you have done this, cursed are you 
above all the livestock. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Remember, this is a curse on the serpent. This is not a curse on Adam and Eve. And what you have going on here is the proud being brought low. We spent some time talking about how this snake, it's more than a snake because snakes don't talk, right? There is something here that is filled with cunning and wisdom and power and yes, quite possibly beauty. The image I need to get in my mind that I think works better is dragon. Have you seen The Hobbit? Have you seen The Hobbit? Thank you, the of course people. The rest of you repent. Um, (laughs) When you think of the snake, what I want you to get in your mind is Smaug. Smaug the serpent. Smaug the dragon. Strong and big and cunning and wise and deceitful and hoarding. This is the image of the serpent in the garden. And the first promise in this curse is simply this. Evil will no longer be victorious. Evil will be brought low. That which represents evil, that which is strongest and most beautiful of it, will be crushed into the dirt, will eat dust. The dragon is reduced to a snake. Are you following this? That which is great and mighty and horrible in this world, God chooses to curse. That's the kind of God he is. He's not an evil God. He's not a malicious God. He's a God who by nature is good. And so tucked within the first promise is evil will be crushed into the dirt. And this idea of evil being forced to crawl on its belly and eat dust all the day of its life, of having its head busted in, guys, it permeates the entire Bible. Let me just show you some ways this continues to play out as this gets applied to evil and God's enemies throughout all of Scripture. Here's just some examples. Here's what the psalm says. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies. Bad people in the Bible gets their heads broken. All right? It's just how it goes. You hear the imagery, though? Do you see it? Here's from uh, Numbers. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And what will this one do? He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheph. Who are these people? I don't know. They're bad guys, all right? Bad guys get their heads busted in the Bible. Going on. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath? Have you ever thought of the significance of the imagery? that when he reaches his hand into the bag and takes out a stone, he slings it and it crushes Goliath in the forehead and he falls to the dust in the ground. By the way, do you know what kind of armor Saul, or excuse me, Goliath is specifically said to wear? Scale armor. That can't be significant. Oh, by the way, do you know how much it weighs? 666 shekels. From Isaiah... They will bow down before you with their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. And it's New Testament too, guys. Think about this picture from Revelation. I saw a dragon give the beast his power. And on his head, the beast seemed to have what? A fatal wound. But yet it seemed to have been healed. And the book of Revelation discloses how this beast continues to go around raging in his wrath for being brought low. Evil will be brought low. Or as Jesus puts it, the humble will be exalted and the proud 
will be brought low. Do you know what the problem with that is, though? Have you ever been around proud people that have been brought low? Are they content to stay there? What do proud people, evil people, who are brought low, who are humbled, seek to do? Get even. And so it comes to the second part of Genesis, where it says, I will put, my enmit- I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. We don't use that word too much anymore, do we? Enmity? It's, it's kind of like a vocab of the day word. We just got to kind of build it back in, I think. Um, what's it mean? Hostility, hatred, warfare. There's nothing passive about this. This is not just an, I don't like you. There is something here that is seeking blood. It is seeking revenge. Can I ask you a question? Do you ever feel like life is out to get you? Can I just kind of show my paranoid side today? Um, you know what? It is. The story of Genesis 3 is that life is not neutral and that the things that happen in this world ultimately at some level are not simply random. The picture that Jesus' Bible gives is of a world at war. And worst, the picture that Jesus' Bible gives is that there are forces in this world, as vague or unidentified as they might seem to us, that are out to kill you that are out to destroy you. Lock your doors tonight, right? But this is what the promise is. I will put hatred because when the evil things of this world are brought low, they are not content to stay there. And when the evil beings of this universe are brought low, they are not content to stay there. You, my friends, are in a world at war. And whether or not you like it, The forces of evil are sniping for you. And it's not just between Eve and the woman, is it? Between your offspring, he says to the serpent, and hers. Tell me, uh, raise your hand on this. Are you human? Yeah. So for the 50% of you here that I've identified, you are, you know, being attacked. For the other 50%, hey, good luck. Tell me what it's like being a cyborg. I'm really fascinated in how that plays out. This is the picture, and this is why Revelation will give images like this. That the dragon who couldn't bring down the male child, the the, the seed to be born, was enraged, and he went off to make war against her offspring, those who obey the commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Which brings us to this. Mutual death blows. How is this war going to end? Each side striking each other. Now the word says, he will crush your head. Who? Some unidentified offspring of the woman, right? Of Eve. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Question, what happens if you do this on a snake's head? If you did it right, it dies, right? Tell me, in an ancient world, if we're assuming poisonous snakes, in a world before anti-venom was developed, what happens if a venomous snake bites your foot? You die. It is mutual death blows. How will the war play out? Through mutual death blows. Now it says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It feels like two different words, right? Here's the phrase in Hebrew. Um, Read it together with me if you would. What, yeah, what I did is I highlighted the verbs, okay? I highlighted the strike and crush 
verb. So what this says is, he will shoof your head and you will shoof his heel. Does that seem like the same word or the different word to you? As it sounds, as it appears, they just translate it in a different way. But what's going on here is that what the, the snake does to the seed, the seed simultaneously in the same way, more or less, does to the snake. It is the same thing, mutual, back and forth, two-way door going on. How does the war end? Evil strikes a death blow. That which is good will die. But simultaneously, that which is good strikes a death blow. Evil will die. Now, now go with me to Jesus. Go with me to Jesus and keep this first gospel in your mind. And let's see how the imagery starts to play out. There's this amazing story. It's called John, written by one of Jesus' earliest followers. And what he does is he lays out Jesus' life, or maybe better put, Jesus' ministry. From the time Jesus began coming on the scene, revealing something extraordinary, something special, something different, something divine about who he is and playing out how he came face to face with the forces of evil in this world. If you've been around church for more than eight minutes, you know how this climaxes and it comes to a time where the forces of evil come to strike Jesus down. They come to kill him and Jesus goes willingly. Look at the imagery from John. Carrying his own cross, Jesus went to where? The place of what? And what is going to be crushed? And here they crucified him. And with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. And Pilate had a nose prepared and he fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Why does John mention the name of the place? Why do we care what is going on here? Are we supposed to see something in what Jesus did as going beyond just the destruction of a good man to something far more significant? Are we supposed to see something more than just another instance of this world of when evil wins to something more significant? Because on that day in 30 AD, when the offspring of a woman, her seed, was killed it was done by impaling a stake into a skull. Did evil really win that day? Or was a mutual death blow struck that crushed the head of evil forever? And this is why throughout the prophets and throughout the New Testament, you'll see these images pick up on it. We'll say, we considered him stricken by God that he was struck down and not just the snake. He was crushed for our iniquities because we're evil, aren't we? I mean, isn't that the point? Isn't that why we're here? I promise you guys, I'm looking at you. It's not because you're good people. You're not, and I'm not either. And the sooner you come to terms with that, the sooner you come to a realistic view of who you are and your place in this world. We're not good people. And that which is not good is cursed. Cursed from the beginning and brought low. Humbled to eat dust and writhe on our bellies. But what is the point of that death blow in the skull about? 
that when good died that day, he was stricken by God, not you. He was crushed for our iniquities, even though we don't deserve it. Which means, if you're evil, stuff like this is speaking directly to you. And what we begin to see is that through the death blow struck on Jesus that day, victory was achieved. That if you're here and you feel like you identify more with the seed of the serpent than the seed of the woman, that what Christ did in that skull called Golgotha has a message for you. That even the seed of the serpent can be brought near through the death blow issued that day. And for God, this was not defeat. For God, this was victory. What does Hebrews say about Jesus? He endured the cross, scorning its shame, so that now he can be glorified because not only are the proud brought low, but the low are exalted. This is why the writers will say things like, he who, who endured death, even death on a cross, is now exalted to the highest place. Because what is tucked within this first passage of the Bible is something so significant to what God is up to in this world. What I love about the Old Testament is it doesn't deny evil. It doesn't deny it. It doesn't whitewash it. It doesn't water it down. It looks at it in all its horrific, gory detail. And it doesn't just look at it in them. It looks at it in each of us. And we see a God, despite the fact that he is good, who doesn't erase evil, but he comes down instead to redeem it. It's a God who doesn't erase evil, but instead he comes down and immerses himself in the midst of it to bring redemption through it. It's like the story of Jesus' Bible is this. Christ takes the hit from the snake and receives the death blow so that that which has been defiled and marred and ruined can be redeemed. And you know what the thing is? Those people back then, they got it. Adam, he got it. It was tucked right there in Genesis. The story goes on to talk about after the curse on the snake and the promises that are made, the consequences of the woman being immersed into death, the ground being immersed into death, Adam and his offspring being immersed into death. And you know what the very next thing he does is? He goes ahead and he names his wife. Because it's about time. She didn't have one yet. The very next thing he names his wife. You know what he names her? Eve. You know why? Because Eve means living. The one who is going to be the bearer of death in this world is named Mother of the Living. Does that make any sense to you? Unless Adam saw in that curse a ray of hope, a promise, an answer by God to the evil of this world, a promise of hope and life and redemption to come. So I'd like to invite you to rise. And what I'd like to do is invite you to put on your lips again this first promise and sign of hope with me. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Pray with me. 
Lord, in the darkest hour when the curses came forth, you embedded a seed of hope and the promise of one to come who will crush the head of the snake of evil in this world. You have embedded a promise of hope and restoration to come. God, we live in a world and it's filled with evil. It's filled with evil all around. Believers right now in Iraq are losing their heads at the hands of ISIS. People in the world right now are enslaved to the evil of addiction. People in the world right now are suffering under the evil of disease. Families right now are pouring evil out upon one another, physically, emotionally, spiritually. God, we stand before you as a people who know the evil that lurks within. Sometimes, God, it feels more like we're offspring of the devil than offspring of Eve. And you chose not to wipe it all away. You chose to come down and bear the brunt of all of it yourself. To take evil and the curse it deserves upon you and to do it for us standing here today. So, Lord, within that, redeem us, we pray. Redeem us, renew us, remake us, reforge us. Recreate us into the people you always intended us to be. And when we stand face to face with evil in this world, may we remember that it ultimately has lost. When we suffer under the hands of evil in this world, God, may we remember that it is ultimately cursed to eat the dust. And when it seems like evil is winning in our lives and in this world, oh God, may we remember that you have come down and have crushed its head, that you have given your life in our stead, that victory ultimately is there for your people. Hear us, God, in all of this we pray. And may this prayer that we utter, that you taught your followers so long ago, may it stem from our heart and define our being and orient us towards the life you've called in your name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.